All right, welcome back to the Pats Interference Podcast after a long layoff coming off the bye week. I, for one, am refreshed. It looks like the Patriots, too, based on their injury report. Had a nice trip out to Pennsylvania, saw some old friends. Uh, who I used to cover Penn State with, went to the game. Might have left in the third quarter due to rain and expense beers and a 30 to nothing score, but that just meant more rest at home, come back. And it's good to be here because the Patriots' biggest game of the season is upon us and to help break that down, Brian Barrett of the Ringer making his debut. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing well, Callahan. I'll tell you this. I am a little bit nervous because it feels like if the Patriots don't win on Sunday, we may not have much of a football season left. This is sort of, in a weird way, a do-or-die game, it feels like, for this Patriots team. So I'm a little bit nervous entering Sunday. All right. Well, you're diving straight into it. So I want to pump the brakes here, but I appreciate that because I, I, I asked this of Jeff Howe the other day. When he was on Jeff Howe of the Athletic National NFL Insider, because he had told me before he still loves the ring of that. It's still new to him. Is Bryant Barrett of the Ringer still ringing well in your ears? Is that new and fresh? You're smiling right now. Yeah, I like it. I like it. It sounds it sounds good. It's been a lot of fun at the Ringer. It gets to do a lot of cool stuff. Get a, get to do, have a lot of cool guests like yourself. You've been on. I think you you're a three time guest, right? I am. I'm honored every time. You may be you may be the leader in the clubhouse. We may have one other three time guest, but I think you're the leader in the clubhouse right now. But, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And the ringer has been awesome to me so far. And it's pretty cool, too. Like I get to do all the Boston teams and focus on that. And I'll tell you what, like doing a four hour show compared to doing like a one hour podcast. (laughs) It's a lot different because right by the time you get to hour three, like doing radio, you're like, okay, hour three. What's up next? And it's like, it feels like, and I hate to like sometimes when you have to recycle material, right? Like I get it because you're doing a four hour show and it's different than somebody just listening for an hour and it's a totally new audience. So I totally understand why you have to do that in radio. But from my perspective, it's not fun to do that over and over again. Like I like to talk about one fresh topic or three fresh topics and be done with it. So that is definitely an advantage of the podcast life at the ringer. Right. And so for folks who don't know, you came from WEI doing those four hour shifts often at night, too, um, which I give you guys a lot of credit. Any Anyone who can talk for four hours like I do 25 to 30 minutes on my own film review after Mondays, after writing up a whole article and the episodes come up on Tuesday. But like all my notes are there or they're in my head. And that goes on easy enough. Um, your podcast off the pike. You go by the metric man now. Is that something that's always been a nickname for you? Or is that a Simmons invention or where did that come up? And because I'm going to hit on that metric man here very soon, as you know, in the rundown. Well, it started actually when I was at EEI and it started from just like a random caller because I had done something Red Sox related. So he's the guy called me the metric man. And then it kind of stuck. My old buddy, Rob Bradford, started using it a lot and then. One of the guys, Coop, that I used to work with at EI, he designed like a Metric Man logo from a picture he took for me in the studio. So I certainly embraced that. And then I started doing these like, you know, little 15 minute Metric Man rants that were like backed with numbers that were basically going after some of the issues that the Red Sox had from a numbers perspective. So it fits. And I do it every once in a while on the pod where I just like break down stuff. I did one on Tatum the other day, which was like a positive one, right? Because Tatum's Ooh. having this incredible season and in where it ranks historically with small forwards and Celtic small forwards in particular. But ordinarily for the Red Sox this year, most of it was negative. And for the Patriots, there had been a negative one based on some of the offensive issues. Yeah, well, we're going to start with three of your favorite Patriots stats. And when I, you know, was going, I was actually scrolling through your feed for my own metrics on the metric, man, just to say the number of tweets that you have includes some sort of advanced stat. And then it was 100 for so long as I kept scrolling. I said, I'm just going to leave this here. We're going to move on and I'm going to give the homework to you. As I mentioned, your three three favorite Patriots stats of the season so far. So starting on a high note before we get into the very serious stakes of what Sunday will be, what are those stats? All right, so I'll start with this, and this is kind of a combination on Ramondre Stevenson. So I get two positive ones. So Ramondre, 493 rushing yards after contact, which is seventh in the NFL, and he has 35 receptions, which is sixth in the NFL. So if you look at that combination, he's the only running back in the NFL in the top seven in both categories. And in fact, there are only a couple of running backs in the top 10 in both categories. That's Aaron Jones, Josh Jacobs, and Saquon Barkley. And the reason I reference that is just because a lot of us were high on Ramondre Stevenson coming into the season, just based on what we saw last year in a smaller sample size. But it's not like he's climbed into the conversation of a top five running back or a top 10 running back in the 
NFL. He's passed so many guys this season that it's just incredible to me because we thought, okay, maybe he can be a pass catching back. And I talked to James White about this prior to the season. He's like, yeah, I think Ramondre can do it. And you see some of these like one-handed catches that he's making. It's just ridiculous. So that combination, Callahan, is just really, really rare to see in the league. So how many stats does that count as? I had it as one. Okay. All right. We got more. Let's go to number two. All right. Number two is just the Jacoby Myers thing. So top 10 in receptions against man this year. And he's 16 to 22 in terms of the targets. So that's 72.7% via PFF. That's really good. And he's 20th at receiving yards at 65.3 per game. And then you look at the catch percentage. It's gone from 65.3% to 76.9%. And the amazing thing to me about this jump for Myers is I think we would all agree it's coming with worse quarterback play with Mac Jones. Here's my concern about the Myers situation is the receiver class in terms of free agency, it's not very good. And if you look at Jacoby Myers, you can say, and Mike Tannenbaum said the other day that he's replaceable. Well, I would argue that he's not replaceable for the Patriots at all because he's their most consistent receiver over the past years. Quite frankly, I underrated the guy coming into the season. I did not think we would see this type of jump from Myers. I thought we'd quite frankly see a jump from Bourne, but Myers has been that guy. And I'm worried, like, if you look at some of these receivers, Robert Woods, 16.2, Allen Robinson, 15.5, Cortland Sutton, 15, Thielen, 14.8. The Patriots gave Aguilar $11 million per season. So my concern going forward is this is the one guy in the passing game that has been consistent over two years with your young quarterback and Mac Jones. They have got to get a deal done with this guy. And I will tell you something too, about those Jacoby Myers numbers. Um, And I'm glad you brought him up because I know we were going to talk about him on your pod earlier this week. Didn't catch you. I still have my notes on him. He is still dealing with the knee injury that is not listed on the injury report. It's not so bad that he's been hampered by it, but you watch him walk through the locker room as I do about two to three times a week. It's very obvious. So this is a guy who's fighting through a serious injury that has been bothering him dating back to August, still producing. He's also someone that just can't get out of the friend zone in the front offices. Like everyone's like, oh, Jacoby's nice. You know, he's like a good guy. Like, he's not that good looking because the game, you know, just to be frank, is kind of unsexy, right? Like the numbers against man are good, but the separation isn't great. He's not, not making these spectacular grabs. There are one and two. You have one against Cleveland. But he's not scoring. Okay, like you must be in a 1.5 point PPR league if he's doing any serious damage. Like that's just who he is. And the thing is, he's fine with that. Like I talked to him a couple months ago. He says, I want to be a security blanket for a quarterback. Like he wants to be a a professional plan B. I don't know any receiver who doesn't want to be dominating catches, making those kind of grabs and obviously scoring touchdowns. The guy is just regular and he's fine. So I think for them, you mentioned the contract. It's interesting because spot track has Alan Lazard pegged for about $11 million per year. I think if the Patriots and we're jumping way ahead here, want to retain him, he might be pushing a, because his agent is now Drew Rosenhaus, whom I don't care if you're the third athletic trainer on staff. If you want to stay with the Patriots, hire Drew as your agent, because him and Bill are so close. You might be looking at something like three for 45 with him three for 46. And the other part about that is, Salary cap is currently expected to go up maybe 225 to 230 million, which would be a jump about 20 to 25 million dollars. This is the last modest jump you're going to see in the NFL salary cap before it goes probably around 250 million in 2024. And then I've heard from agents 300 million dollars in 2025. So wow. as big as that number might see, and let's say he gets three for 50, 51, that would put him at 17 million average annual uh, value. That That'll be a better deal in the years to come by the time it finishes. The trouble is just even Mike Tannenbaum, not a front office anymore, still has Jacoby Myers very much firmly in the friend zone. You just can't. There, there's there's nothing that stands out about him except for his just raw stats and week-to-week reliability. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of in a weird way? And I would do that deal if I was the Patriots just because if you asked me prior to the season, I wouldn't have because I would have expected that, hey, you can get more production from other guys. And he's not a super great athlete. He doesn't do a ton after the catch. So I would not have given him that contract. But it almost reminds me in a weird way of like Bogarts, right? Because Xander Bogarts for <laughs> the Sox, of course, he is like the king of ground ball hits. And you're like, OK, and his expected numbers are always worse than his actual numbers. But at some point, you got to acknowledge like, okay, this guy just may be really good at doing this particular thing where he can hit it where the infielder is not. He's it's he's a skilled hitter, right? He's an incredible hitter in terms of his hands. And I know I'm going down a rabbit hole here, 
But with Myers, it's like, well, I, I have to believe it now. Because now we're seeing it for the second consecutive season. He's doing it each and every week. As you said, he's doing it banged up. So I'm at the point now where just based on the evidence, I have to believe on, on in the player. And it's not like you have great backup plans to not bring him back. Exactly. And he's also a guy, and, and people remembered this like it was the Chris Hogan played lacrosse. I don't know if you ever heard that. Uh, that he I heard was it a converted, once. Yeah, yeah, once or twice. He was a converted quarterback coming out of NC State. So he came in playing two seasons of receiver. His first year is like, oh, Tom Brady needs you ASAP because our first round pick to kill Harry is flopping in 2019. And he goes out and he's one of their leading pass catchers. 2020, number one receiver by catches. Last year, the same deal. And now he's on target despite missing a couple of games. To do it again. Enough of Jacoby Myers, your third favorite Patriot stat uh, from the season. Okay, this is the one that I'll skew negative with because we've made a lot about the RPOs and the play action. But if you just look at Mac Jones this season, two and a half seconds or less, that is 47.4% of his dropbacks, which is 19th in the NFL. And actually, I'm going back to let me give you the stats from last year first. So that was last year, 47.4% of his dropbacks, 76.6% in terms of his completion percentage which was fifth among qualifiers, and he had a 102.6 rating, which was 11th. This year, the number of dropbacks, less than two and a half seconds, has dropped to 40.9% from that 47.4. That's 32nd in the NFL. The completion percentage has dropped to 68.4, so not horrible, but it's 27th compared to fifth the season ago. And the rating's at 73.5, which is 38th in the NFL. And just the reason I bring this up is, there were layups in the offense for Mac last season. They had things that were working for Mac to get rid of the ball quickly. And this year, not to say that Mac doesn't deserve a lot of the blame for the performance he's had this year compared to a season ago, but the coaching staff, and in particular Matt Patricia and the offensive coaching staff, have made life more difficult for Mac. And it's one of the most disappointing things of the season to me is they're not helping the young quarterback in year two. And as much as we want to criticize, or at least I did Josh McDaniels at times, and I know his team's two and seven, they're talking about his status long-term. He did do a really good job, at least for the first 13 weeks or so with Mac Jones, giving him easy opportunities in the passing game. And we're just not seeing that this season. You're right. And, and there's a, there's a lot there. The numbers, you know, two and a half seconds, a that's where PFF tends to draw the line, but it's also, you know, you go historically under that represents quick game. Okay. Beyond that, either you're under pressure or it's a longer developing pass play. And so the reason that Mac Jones has snaps, I think you said around 73% down to 40 or 41% of his dropbacks are under two and a half seconds is both by design. The Patriots early in the season tried to take the passing game downfield, longer developing throws and then also he's under more pressure it's up about one or two pressures per game and so the trouble is like you mentioned they made a conscious decision to say we want to generate explosive plays downfield and you needed to change like the upside of this is buffalo had solved you ever since sean mcdermott got there even against tom brady who threw more interceptions than touchdowns against the bills defense since 2017 you're averaging fewer than 20 points per game against the best team in the division. You needed to change the structure of this offense as much as it might have been fourth in points or whatever it was last year. The issue is not all change is, you know, created equal and was not as effective. And that decision to go more downfield with an offense that lacks an, an explosive play threat, like, look, Nelson Aguilar is great time speed. His one touchdown is like the rare contested credit grab he had against Pittsburgh. Otherwise, he's done nothing. Tyquan Thornton, he's a rookie. You can't bank on that with him. Devontae Parker in and out of the lineup because that's what Devontae Parker does. And Mac Jones is much better zero to 10 yards of the line of scrimmage than anything beyond 10 yards. So the decision to live there, I think, was a mistake and is obviously highlighted in your numbers. Now, part of the reason I asked you for three favorite stats is, you know, folks who listen to the pod know we always end with a 3-2-1 preview, three matchup, two keys, and then one extra point. I wanted to do 3-2-1 metric man intro. So we have your three favorite stats. We're going to go down memory lane quickly and then come back to the president, and I promise sink into this game. So we'll do these quickly. But you've been following the Patriots for a long time, and I like your global perspective on Boston sports, which I would love to dip into some of the Tatum stuff and what the hell the Red Sox are doing. But sticking here, your, your two favorite Pats-Jets memories, when you look back at this rivalry, which hasn't been a rivalry considering the Patriots have won 13 in a row now. All right, so like the Mo Lewis thing changed the trajectory of the franchise, but I can't put it there just because Drew Bledsoe was so hurt, right? It wasn't just a concussion. It was a chest injury. So 
in the moment, that was a really bad moment, not only for the organization, but for Bledsoe. Now, as we all know, history would change when Brady would take over. But just for the sake of Drew Bledsoe, I can't put that in there just because of the injury that he sustained. So I'll give you one game and one sort of moment. The first one is the butt fumble, right? Because, yeah. I mean, you, you can't forget that. And remember, the Patriots had recently lost to the Jets in the postseason. This was Thanksgiving night. It was a national game. Everybody was watching it. The Patriots completely throttle the Jets 49 to 19. Sanchez has that play, of course, that will always be shown on TV for years to come. We're never not going to see that one. And that was sort of the Patriots putting the Jets back in their place. Like, okay, you had your fun. You made it to your two AFC championship games. But you know what? That's not going to happen anymore. So that's the game. And there was a lot of nominees, like seeing ghosts, whatever, with Sam Darnold. That was a big one, too. But the moment to me and I kind of like this more than the butt fumble or anything that's happened on the field is the Revis signing, right? Because this was the Jets guy. And if you go back 2009, Callahan, I would argue that he had the best cornerback season in NFL history. And it's still a joke that Charles Woodson won the defensive player of the year over him. If you look at his numbers against the elite receivers in the NFL. So he comes to the Patriots and the first four games aren't great, but then they kind of figure out what they're doing. Belichick that year, they did a really cool thing where he would cover the number two receiver and they would like double the number one. So it was really cool to see. And then for it to cap off with the Patriots winning the Super Bowl and the Jets fans having to watch really the best player they've had over the past two decades without question. I mean, this guy was one of the best cornerbacks in NFL history. Having to sit there and watch Darrell Revis win a Super Bowl with Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, just the pain that caused Jets fans is so satisfying to me. All right. I like it. I had uh, the butt fumble on my list as a moment. And I, I like the Revis stuff, too, because if you really want to get into it, like the contract he signed, and, and he was known, of course, to Jets fans, is this real hardliner negotiation. Multiple times leaving the team, holding out. Rex Ryan has to go and basically beg to have him back. He gets the deal that he wants. In New England, it was, okay, the average annual value is going to have you as the highest paid cornerback in the league. And this was even a time when his value was, quote, unquote, diminished from going to Tampa Bay. I think he tore his ACL. But that was backloaded. So the year that they actually paid him, you know, I don't know if it was, um, uh, I'm forgetting the term, but the, uh, you know, the, the years you tack onto a deal where it's going to expire, like Brady's last contract year. Where yeah, they the void years. Void years, exactly. It was essentially a void year. So they knew they could cut him cut bait, but Reva still gets to say he's the highest paid corner. And he took that deal. Whereas with the Jets, a little bit more hard line. The game for me, though, that I think a lot of people forget is after the 06 season, it was the wild card round against the Jets here at home, the height of man genius who had just beaten the Patriots in the mud, their last game played on natural grass at Gillette Stadium. And he was using what they call then the Times Square defense. Everybody's walking around. Brady can't read the defense. We've since called it the Amoebas. Belichick dusted off and used it in 2018, a little bit in 19. The Patriots come out, no huddle, opening drive touchdown, Corey Dill in the first three minutes. They eventually win that game 37 to 16, but it was just the height of kind of the chess match with Belichick, obviously Mancini, everything that went on there, but then Brady solving something at a time when the Jets started to really push the Patriots. Uh, and we forget because, you know, the next game we go on the road and beat the Chargers and that come back and then lose the Colts in the AFC Championship game. But they, the Jets had taken something from the Patriots at that point, proven they could, which is the whole bedrock of rivalry. All right, uh, real quick, the one part of this 3-2-1 intro for Brian Barrett. Who's a Jets player in the past, or maybe even on the present roster, that like as a kid growing up as a Patriots fan, you're like, I really, I'd really like them on the Patriots, but I can't tell this to anyone because I might risk losing a friend because that's just how rivalry works. Anyone that you remember like that? Well, I mean, if it's current one, they got a lot of them, right? Like I take Garrett Wilson, I take Sauce Gardner, <laughs> or any of those guys. But in terms of like when this rivalry was at its peak, the guy that I always loved was Nick Mangold, man, because like mm. he had the long hair. He was nasty. First team all pro twice. And he was a second team all pro like for a three year period, three, four year period. You could argue that he was the best center in the league. And remember, that's when the Jets had the whole ground and pound thing. They had a bunch of different running backs. They brought in at one point. LT was there. And the thing that was different to me about Mangold than ordinary offensive linemen is because he became almost like a face of the Jets. Obviously, they had Revis there too, and Sanchez was the quarterback. But Mangle, because of maybe it was just his look, he was recognizable. I mean, he was all over TV and stuff, and he was one of the most marketable stars for the Jets. And how many other centers can actually say they're a marketable star? Like, think about the best offensive lineman in the NFL today. It's like Trent Williams, right? 
Nobody is like marketing Trent Williams. Nick Mangle was like a marketable star in New York. So I thought that that was a really cool thing. And like the Patriots always, for the most part, had great offensive lines until, I mean, the line we're seeing this year, 15, it was really bad. But for the most part, they've had good lines for a long time. Now, maybe that's changing, but just having Mangle be part of that line would, I mean, completely put you over the top. It's funny you mentioned him because I think at some point during this season, I saw a Nick Mangold commercial and it must have been like before the Monday night game. Like, I don't know what time I was just sitting watching football because Sundays are totally occupied by going to the stadium or traveling, covering the game, obviously writing afterward. And I'm going, how the hell does Nick Mangold still have a commercial? But there is, you're totally right. There's something about his vibe, the hair, the guy who's kind of been around. You're like, oh yeah, I kind of remember him because people do. It sticks with you also fantastic name nick mangold um yeah. for me it was it was jim leonard and not so much in like oh he always killed the patriots this was not like you know even a wayne corbett back in the days which i think is an easy name to pull out but he was a guy that you know in the game that they beat the patriots in the visual round helped create the game plan that totally flummoxed brady and belichick and as someone who always had a nose around the ball the guy is a fan favorite because he's like five nine on a good day would also blitz and just got the most out of what he was doing. And I always felt like would it be a really good fit in New England. Now the defensive coordinator, maybe interim head coach of Wisconsin, their defense is outstanding. I think he's a really smart guy that would have been a lot of fun here. But their safeties even back then, like Kerry Rhodes had a lot, a number of good seasons back there, could blitz, could cover. You know, Revis was an easy answer in 09. I think I'm on board with you there. At least recent NFL history, like I can't speak to the Deion Sanders years and the height of those days. And I'm sure we'll have some answers in the comments of people who are forgetting. But you're right. Like Revis Island was very much a real thing like those receivers were as they say on a milk carton uh against the jets every week that season okay let's get into the present the patriots are five and four the jets are six and three when you look at the jets not much has changed since we saw them and previewed them a couple of weeks ago they are six and three as i mentioned ninth overall in dboa 19th in offense sixth on defense eighth on special teams their last four games the one thing that has changed is they have the best win of the season between themselves and the Patriots. And that was 20 to 17 versus Buffalo week before as we run down their last four, uh, obviously lost the Patriots 22 to 17 the week before that one at Denver 16 to nine. And one of these games that just like, if the Broncos are on your TV, just, just change the channel. There's no need to watch that game. Anything, <laughs> anything involving the Broncos, just get it out of your life. And then before that, and this feels a million years ago, they won 27 10 at green Bay, a win that makes a little bit more sense considering what we know about the Packers. So, as you can tell, this is a top 10 team, just barely by DVOA, but it would be firmly if not for the offense. And that's largely because of Zach Wilson. Zach Wilson completing 57% of his passes, four touchdowns, five interceptions, a QBR at 49, 1,202 yards on the season. People ask, like, how did they upset the Bills? And I answered this on TV just last night. The answer is real simple. Zach Wilson got spanked against Patriots, learned his lesson at least for a week of, like, just take the checkdowns. On the flip side, Josh Allen had his worst game of the season. And part of that certainly was a function of a good Jets defense, zero touchdowns and two picks. And so I think all of that considered against the Patriots offense that similarly has a very good defense and very good special teams, but a quarterback who, despite the raw numbers, is still a little more risk averse than Zach Wilson. They're favored by three and a half points. I think they should be. And if they win as expected, does that change your confidence and belief understanding this is a good team, basically, except for the quarterback? Or do you still feel the same about the Patriots that they win and both of these teams are six and four? Yeah, I think they have to win convincingly for me to feel good about it for a couple of reasons, right? Because I'm not going to learn much about the Patriots defense. And we know that they're first in EPA, they're first in a bunch of statistical categories. But unless they really play poorly, then we're like, oh, the Patriots defense really got exposed. But you think about the quarterbacks they've beaten, Trubisky, Goff, Brissett, Wilson, and Sam Ellinger, which I still don't know why the Colts are playing that guy. But nonetheless, the losses are Tua, who's been incredible this season, Lamar, who we know what he does, Rodgers, even though he's having a down year, it's Rodgers, and Fields, who's like really starting to come on right now. So they've lost to the good quarterbacks, and they've beaten the bad quarterbacks. So Next week, when you play Cousins and then you have Josh Allen, that's where I think we really start to judge this defense. And look, they're doing their job. This is not meant to be an indictment on the defense. It's just I can't really learn a lot from the Patriots defense if they really slow down Zach Wilson and that Jets offense. But the offense to me, this is where I think it has to be convincing. 
they have to show me something. The Jets, as you pointed out by those numbers, they're really good defensively. But if you look at the Patriots, the offense has been really a mess. They're turning the ball over on 16.5% of their drives, second worst in the NFL. And look, they've cut it down a little bit, but they're still turning the football over. Their scoring is just middle of the road, 35.9% of their drives, which is 17. As a team, they're 23rd in passing, 202 yards. Their third down conversion rate has been horrible, under 40%. And then the the touchdown percentage in the red zone is the big one to me, 28th in touchdown percentage in the red zone, which is just really bad. And you've had a lot of time here in this bye week to find out, hey, what do we do right? Who do we need to get more involved? Do we have to change things? Not dramatically, schematically, but do we have to lean on certain things that we weren't leaning on prior to the bye week? So from my perspective, if you come out of this game with a similar result to the one that you had against the Jets the first time, I'm not going to be convinced that this Patriots team can make a run, especially when the schedule really starts to get more difficult with a lot of the teams on there that I just can't look at it, Callahan and say, yeah, I feel really good about the Patriots squeezing one out. I need to see a good game from the quarterback and a good game from the play caller. Hey guys, just a quick break to remind you, Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs for football and basketball this season. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and live score, not only for football and basketball, but you can get on there for NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, even golf. So head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50%, that's 5-0, 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use the promo code CLNS50, CLNS50, for a 50% welcome bonus. Bet online where the game starts. So I was inclined to, when I, when I looked at my own question, and thought about it, uh, asking myself to totally agree with you. Like there, there's not much this game can do to change my opinion of the Patriots understanding you beat them on the road by five points cover what Zach Wilson is. And I have some Zach Wilson stats, uh, they unveiled on TV last night, but I want to repeat here because they're, they're, I, I think hilarious, but the jets don't change what they do offensively or defensively. Like you've already passed this test. And so beating them does not present any sort of new challenge for the Patriots. It's still a good test. Again, this is the team that is ninth best in the league by DVOA, but you've already proven you can do this and kind of wait out Zach Wilson. The one thing that changed my mind is that if this game, A, either becomes miraculously a shootout and you get this outstanding offensive performance, something best of the year, and you go, oh, well, the, the Jets had a couple wrinkles for the Patriots. Wilson didn't throw the ball away, makes a couple of these plays that everyone who stands for Zach Wilson goes, those are the throws that he makes. Your offense comes up, either has a comeback. That shows me you can solve a new problem, like a 10-point second-half deficit, which they really haven't been able to do with Mac Jones, considering how run-heavy they've been. You win a game like that, and you understand and trust that your defense will bounce back moving forward. I do trust them a little bit more, even if they get themselves in a hole and they were down, you know, 10 to six at halftime against the Jets. That's not 10 points down where the Jets have control of the game. I just think that's probably the only path, even if they do win. Now, if they win convincingly, like you said, that's a totally different story. And I think everyone's going, okay, they have a chance here. They're six and four. You can go on the road and beat Minnesota. The flip side of this is if they lose to the Jets, which again, very possible. Their playoff chances plummet to 17% according to 538, which 17%, not nothing, but I think considering the schedule, you go, probably not going to happen. Do you believe their postseason odds completely hinge? Do you think it's lower than 70% if they lose on Sunday? Yeah, I believe this is over if they lose, because you think about it, you play a good Vikings team who just beat the Bills. You play Buffalo twice. You have Miami again, who looks like one of the best offenses in the league. And by the numbers, they are. Cincinnati, who's had its ups and downs, but they're going to have the quarterback advantage in that game, as we know. And then you have the Chargers and the Bengals that are creeping behind you in the standings. And as we mentioned, you're going to play Cincinnati. But the other portion of this is, I think, emotionally, this is going to kill the Patriots, right? Because if you think about it, the past two weeks have been fine because they won those games. They ended up beating the Colts. They ended up beating the Jets. And we've talked a lot about how dominant the defense is. But During that time, it's been sort of, I would even argue, a 75-25 split between what people are actually talking about, right? Maybe I'm even underrating that. It's been more about the struggles of the offense than it has been the greatness of the defense so far this season. And if you can't figure out that puzzle and you, you lose this game to the Jets, I don't know how anybody in the locker room or, quite frankly, anybody in the fan base is just going to say, 
you know what? I think we can go on this big run against all these really good teams because here's the problem. You had that loss already. That loss was Monday night against the Chicago Bears. That's the bad loss in your schedule. Even though Chicago's playing much better, the way that that happened where the team was not prepared, Belichick, unfortunately, was thoroughly outcoached in that game. He made the decision, the whole thing with Mac playing three series. So that's already the bad loss. You can't repeat that type of situation against this Jets team. You can only have one of those when you're a team like the Patriots where the margin of error isn't very big. Yeah, it's it's interesting, too, because I, I look at this game and, and anytime I get asked about, you know, radio or otherwise, is this a must win game? And it's the first half of the season. I just I, I want to scream like F no, like hell no. Must win means, you know, there is no other option. You are eliminated if you lose mathematically. That's it. Because the and I, I look at that and take that similar attitude here, because let's say they lose closely to the Jets and you take whatever form of a good loss there is, even though you drop down to five and five. I still think there's a world in which they go on the road and beat Minnesota because there is a short week. Everyone knows about Kirk Cousins in prime time. The Vikings, now granted this was four years ago, scored just 10 points here. The last time the Patriots unveiled that amoeba defense that we covered really briefly earlier. And I think they could go on the road and do that. At that point, you're six and five, which is the same place that I think most fans would expect them to be with a win over the Jets and then a loss to the Vikings who are eight and one. Great for them, but they're not the same eight and one kind of convincing team which isn't to take anything away from them that you look at the standings and go, they're a powerhouse like you thought Buffalo might be. And that's the other part about this is the Bills, I think, have underperformed relative to expectation at the start of the year when people are jokingly, including your boss, going, oh, you know, the 17-0 Bills or the 16-1 Bills because they're that talented, they're that well-rounded. Who's to say the Patriots don't catch Buffalo on a bad day like the Jets do? And you can't bank on that, obviously. It's a, it's a lower likelihood than it is more probable to happen. I just think... You know, after the bye week or over the summer or through an off season, the more time passes, the more those of us on the outside get so certain about what's going to happen next. And then games like the Monday night loss to the Bears happen and we go, oh, that's right. We know nothing, Jon Snow. And so it's a big game. They're a good team. And I I think 17% is probably spot on, which, oh, hey, hats off. I think the mathematicians who do math a lot more than me you know, do their jobs well. But there, there's still a path here. And that's because teams like Buffalo or even Miami, I think might come down to earth or just stay where they are in Buffalo's case, um, because this is the NFL and things like that uh, are unpredictable. And it's, it sounds like a Kappa. I just, man, I, that if they lose two, obviously they're done. They're cooked like that. That's not to go on a limb. Um, and you need to win this game. I just, I don't think it's totally over if they lose the jets on Sunday, it's just really, really hard. And they're going to need uh, Mac to be Mac on the road and their defense to turn Kirk into a pumpkin in prime time. Um, this, I think, is an easier question to answer. If they lose, are they officially the worst team in the division? I think they have to be, right? I mean, you think yeah. about Miami right now, you could argue they were playing some of the best football in the league. Now, I get they had that one hiccup offensively against the Steelers, but I'm really high on everything they're doing. They have a million weapons. Tua's becoming a really good quarterback, which, quite frankly, I didn't see coming. Buffalo is Buffalo. And then the Jets game was losable the first time if it wasn't for the quarterback playing so poorly. And they already have a win stockpiled against the Bills. They're already, what would they be, seven and three after this game? So it would be really difficult to argue that the Patriots would be a better team than the Jets. And man, that's a crazy scenario to sort of play out because prior to the season, we thought that, okay, maybe Miami could be better than the Patriots. They swept them last year when the Patriots made it into the postseason and Miami went out there and they acquired more talent. And they acquired a pass rusher, too, at the deadline in Bradley Chubb. So they're go going all in, trying to give Tua everything he possibly needs to win at a high level. So you could see them being third in the division. But to fall behind the Jets, and really, if you think about it, the reason that would happen, and again, this is not meant to be an indictment on Mac. We thought that Mac this year, or at least I did, I don't want to speak for everyone, would be significantly better than Zach Wilson. Now, Zach Wilson, we know, has some tools and all that, but it just felt like it was going to take a while if it was going to work for Zach Wilson. And Zach Wilson has been worse than Mac. I'm not saying that. But the margin of the difference of those two guys' performances is not as wide as I would thought it would have been coming into the season. So that's why, yeah, clearly they would be the last team in the division because you, the Jets have a – I would say the Jets have a more talented team than the Patriots just on paper. They have more blue-chip players. Yeah, no question about it. And you you hit the nail on the head. The The reason anyone would argue preseason, you're not making this argument now, for the Patriots over the Dolphins and certainly the Jets is edge a coach, 
an edge of quarterback. And the way Mac has regressed and Zach Wilson has hung out at the same sort of level and been carried by his team to a six and three record, um, you know, is the reason you would have picked them. But Mac has come back to that level and their, their numbers over the last 13 games, which you go back towards the last third of last season are basically the same. And that's a real problem for the Patriots who, like you mentioned, we're counting on Mac internally as well as a fan base to kind of elevate the offense and the way things have gone around him. Hey, I don't think he has that capability anyway, but the environment they put him in is kind of inhospitable to an offense to take another step from last year, which was pretty good on its own, even though it had some obvious limitations. I'm glad you mentioned Zach Wilson because I forgot to mention my stat, which I said on TV last night. For his career, okay, this is who Zach Wilson is for a year and a half. Because the thing about Mac Jones is he's played at a level Zach Wilson does not come close to so far. You're still, if you are arguing for Zach Wilson, you are showing one to two plays of look at this throw. This is so great. He's extending. He's throwing 60 yards across the field, and that's it. If you're arguing for Mac Jones, you're going, here are the stats for his first 12 games of the season. This is an average to an above average quarterback. When you do that argument for Zach Wilson, his career, we're talking about a season and a half now. He's completed 56% of his passes. He has three more interceptions and touchdowns, and his passer rating is 72.1. There is a quarterback who, in the last 15 to 20 years, made a Super Bowl with almost identical numbers over his nine-year career. This quarterback completed 55% of his passes, down 1%. He had four more interceptions and touchdowns over his career in the exact same passer rating, 72.1. So in my mind, Zach Wilson, through a year and a half, has been this quarterback. Can you think or guess this quarterback who is carried by his defense and special teams to a Super Bowl in the last 15, 20 years? And it's not Trent Dilfer. Oh, that was going to be my guess. Um, Belger said the same thing last two during the break last night. And I, I gave it up to him, which I should have saved it for the, the on-air segment. But was it Brad Johnson? No, it couldn't be Joe Flacco, right? Because he had better. Between he had better Brad number. Johnson and Joe Flacco. The exact same passer rating as Zach Wilson. He. Mm, I'll I'm tell stumped. You. It's not Ben. It's Rex Grossman. Oh, I was thinking one of Super Bowl. Okay, Rex. Yeah, with that Bears team. Oh my God, that's bad memories too. Because the Patriots would have killed the Bears in that Super Bowl. And sit, yes, and say what you will about completion percentage and interceptions and touchdowns. It's certainly passer rating in this area of you know metric men and advanced stats. They're not perfect. But let me tell you, Zach Wilson right now is Rex Grossman, and that's who he's been throughout his career. He just has a better arm. He's better looking. He might be on the prowl a little bit more uh, and for North Jersey moms than Rex Grossman ever was. But that's neither here nor there. It's just to say the thing about Zach Wilson is he's bad and he continues to be bad. And the fact that Mac Jones has been playing at that level is the reason, obviously, the Patriots are in this position. How much of that is his fault remains to be seen. But that's also the reason they would be definitively uh, the worst team in the division to answer my own question. Uh, if they lose to the Jets, because like you said, they're more talented and they're, they would have to win on the margins more than the Patriots on Sunday, then go to seven and three. The Patriots are five and five in this discussion is moving. Okay. We started with three, two, one. Let's end with three, two, one here as we do every game preview episode. Um, three matchups. You have two. I have one. So why don't you lead us off? All right. So the first one I have is I don't know exactly who's going to get Garrett Wilson, because I mean, one of the big plays he had last game, broken coverage with Jalen Mills whether Jack Jones is going to get his time on him, whoever it is in the secondary and how the Patriots are going to determine how they're going to play him. Like, are they actually going to give this kid attention as a rookie where they're going to put a safety over the top? Because last time 115 yards for him, he followed that up with eight for 92 against the Buffalo bills. And this is their big play guy. And you mentioned Zach Wilson just recently here is he's not going to orchestrate a lot of long drives where it's short passes, right? Where they're moving the chains consistently they need splash plays, the Jets do, in their passing game. And Garrett Wilson is a problem for the Patriots defense. He's already a problem for NFL defenses. So if he makes a couple of big splash plays in this game, it does worry me that this is how the Jets offense gets going. It opens things up for the running game, which we know they want to take the ball out of Zach Wilson's hands. But Garrett Wilson, to me, is the scariest player on this Jets offense because he is the one guy I feel like completely can change the game for them. No question. And you look at the raw numbers. They tell the story, too. He has nine more catches than anyone else on the roster. He has more than 100 yards than anyone else on the roster. You know, his yards per reception leads the team. And you look down the other list on that leaderboard, tight end Tyler Conklin doesn't scare you. Then you get to two running backs, Michael Carter, Brees Hall, who's obviously out for the year. Corey Davis, who missed the last game, has been dinged up. He didn't practice on Wednesday. And then Elijah Moore and Braxton Berrios. And the Patriots go, yeah, if you want to throw to Braxton Berrios, 
Thank you very much. We had him for the first year plus of his career. Braxton's been better. Congrats to him for getting a second contract with the Jets, but he's just not going to kill you. Um, my matchup, on the other hand, is a guy who could kill the Patriots, and that's Quinnen Williams. Now, his matchup with David Andrews, you would feel more comfortable with because of the way that the Patriots didn't really survive, but they won with Andrews sideline with a concussion, James Ferentz starting and facing Williams, and not only Williams, but Sheldon Rankins, who's going to miss this game in all likelihood with a dislocated elbow. So the thing is, Quinton Williams can still win this matchup because he is the best player in their interior line versus the Patriots interior line. And I think they're obviously going to try to position him against Cole Strange, who's been benched in two straight games. And in that game against the Jets, it wasn't just the two holding penalties. It wasn't just a sack. You had a run stuff and a hurry allowed in there too. And then he played even worse against the Colts. So they're going to look at those snaps of Cole Strange versus DeForest Buckner, again, I think David Andrews helps there. How much of that is schematic? How much of that is him making checks at the line? Or also just holding up one-on-one himself because the Jets don't like everybody else. The easiest way to fluster Mac is with pressure inside. Same with any pocket-bound quarterback. And David Andrews, again, either making calls or physically, needs to hold up and neutralize Williams because you can help right tackle, which has been a revolving door. And we've talked about this endlessly in the podcast, specifically Isaiah Wynn. Chips, doubles, slide the protection, all of that, boot, run away from it. That's easy. But you can only do that if your center is holding up one-on-one, and that's why I think him, David Andrews against Quinn Williams is going to be big. Um, all right, our third and final matchup to watch. What do you got? Yeah, just real quick on Quinn Williams, too. That guy mm-hmm. is an absolute monster. Like, yeah. the Jets have been so good hitting at these, hitting on these draft picks except the quarterbacks. Like, they've hit on Gardner. They've hit on Wilson. They hit on Quinn and Williams, who I believe was the number two pick when he came out. So they've done a really good job. It's just they're missing on the biggest piece, which happens to be the quarterback. All right, so the other one I have is Ramondre Stevenson just against the uh, Jets' rush defense in general because – if you look at the Jets' rush defense, 4.0 yards per carry, that's fifth. Six in run stuff percentage. Last time Ramondre in that game, he had that incredible 35-yard run. But for the game, he was at 16 for 71. So that's, what, 4.4 yards per carry. But you take out that one run, it's 2.25. So it wasn't a very efficient game for Ramondre Stevenson. And this isn't Ramondre Stevenson's fault. As we know, it's the line up front has not given him a lot of help, as I outlined earlier, with all the yards that he's having after contact. Now he was very effective in the passing game, seven for 72 in that game. So the thing I look at in terms of the Patriots and in particular with the quarterback is I'm still not at a point, obviously based on the way that Max playing where I think they need to take some advantage of things in the passing game, but they also need a healthy diet of Ramondre Stevenson being effective in the run game to try to make life a little bit easier for Mac Jones and Ramondre being without question, the best offensive player in this game. He can't be somebody that is not effective in the run game whatsoever. And if it is, hopefully you find a way to, like you did last time, get him involved in the passing game because I just want to get my best offensive player, the ball in space, and whatever is the most effective way to get Ramondre Stevenson the ball, you got to do that if you're Matt Patricia because you got to recognize that the Jets have an elite defense, a really good defense, And one of the only cards you have to play from just a personnel standpoint is Ramondre. So whatever they do or whatever they can do to make Ramondre more efficient in the game, that's what Matt Patricia and company need to do. Yeah. And we, you know, this is a whole different topic, but I would probably just stop calling zone runs where you've been killed this year. And it's been very apparent for two months that this is a much better uh, running game when you're running man runs, power, counter, duo then the outside zone stuff, which they tried to install since the spring. It hasn't worked. And that's when you see Ramondre Stevenson dealing with guys knifing into the backfield because you mentioned those 71 rushing yards. I tweeted this out after the game, and I had a, a typo in there. But without the typo, 71 yards total, 82 after contact. That means he's getting hit in the backfield and making up for that, most you know, obviously through the 35 run that you mentioned. Like That's creating a running game all on his own. And in that game, too, more than one-fifth of their offensive plays went backwards. So you want to talk about penetration, a good defensive line. That was the name of the game and the whole story of that first um, Jets matchup. So, yeah, Ramondre is huge. At the risk of sounding like an idiot and missing someone, take Matt Judon off the board. You you can make an argument for Devin McCourty, maybe Kyle Duggar. Is there a better player in this roster right now? No, unless you – I mean, Judon is the only one. I don't think so. I don't think if it's, I don't even think it's close. I mean, he's in the family photo of the best running backs in the NFL. I mean, I thought he was going to be good, but what he's been able to accomplish this season is just incredible. And the 
lack of having a really good offensive line makes this even more impressive. Like how many times have we seen the Shanahan scheme with a running back out in San Francisco? Like now, obviously they get the cheat code because they got McCaffrey, but how many random guys were like great for San Francisco because it was scheme and it was personnel. The most incredible thing to me about Ramondre is he's doing this quite frankly. You mentioned the zone runs. He's doing this without either. They're not making it easy for him schematically. They're not making it easy for him by creating holes for him. So he's doing this all himself. Judon, though, I would say that he's still going to be number one because he's taken his game to a completely different level in terms of leading the league in sacks, third in pressures, all that type of stuff. My big question with Judon is going to be, hey, uh, final four games, man. Uh, We need you this year, okay? We can't have a similar thing. And I know he's banged up. He had COVID and all that. Kind of need you down the stretch because – he is a game record for this team. That Jets game is a perfect example of it. He completely ruined that game. He did. And, you know, that's something he's brought up a lot on his own at press conferences. And you look at his snap counts, they're down. They're intentionally rotating him, taking out the field in early downs. And he said in the offseason, he was asking vets older than him about conditioning, how to stay healthy through the end of the season. So he's at least aware of that. We'll see if there's a big change. I think it would be harder for him to do worse than I think it was one quarterback hit in the last four weeks of that regular season. So you're talking after the bye which is what he had, including, of course, COVID diagnosis. And, you know, that would be the first step is just don't get sick. But hey, uh, when do we get the 30 for 30 on what happened during the bye week for the entire team? (laughs) It's still like a mystery. Like what the hell happened? You know, in past years, I can tell you in 19, they, um, you know, because they fall, they fell apart at the end of that year, too. Belichick went heavy with padded practices as a way to say like, Hey, don't take the dolphins lightly in that, that season finale. That did not go over well with players. They were coming right off of mm-hmm. Christmas. You win this game, you're two touchdowns. It might've been 17 point favorites against Miami. You obviously lose that game in Devonte Parker's, you know, game of his life. Um, but that's sometimes where they've had some self-inflicted wounds. Now you fast forward two and a half years. Here we are. And Belichick is lightening up on some of those padded practices in training camp. And look, they're still physical. They, they physicality is at the top of their list of things that we want to accomplish and do in an age where everyone's going side to side and you're trying to create space and play basketball on grass. That's part of their advantage still. But I think Belichick has leaned more into the sports science part. And maybe last year was kind of the proverbial straw that broke, you know, camel bills back because it's been a big change as far as I've seen the way that they practice and the way that they've been uh, forcing the players to expend energy early and midway now through the season. So, yeah, 30 for 30. It might be 30 seconds. Like, I don't know how many people want to watch that <laughs> that season, but it's it's a good point. Um, all right, let's do two keys. I'll start uh, early down passing. The Patriots threw on early downs close to 70% of the time in the first matchup. It didn't work out so well because of the lack of protection. I think those issues are ones now that you can anticipate. I don't know how well you can solve them considering, you know, God, you could just might start again at right tackle, or if not, it's Isaiah win, but that's still better than banging your head against a good run defense, which is what they did against the Colts. I've ran down these stats plenty of times, but ultimately you set yourself behind the chains when you do that. And we talked about the penetration of the Jets got, you need to put the ball in max hands, put him in shotgun, go quick game, negate the pressure, go no huddle. Those are the same things they did to start the second half of their only touchdown drive with a good diet of RPOs to take advantage of that Jets defense. And then at some point, if they want to stay in too high, then mix in some first down runs. But you are 20th in first down pass rate, and you are running into stack boxes as Matt Patricia, more than all but five of their offense in the league, which include offenses like uh, Buffalo, Baltimore, the Eagles, and Tennessee that have a reason to run a first down because they're really good at it. You are not there yet. So throw the ball more in first down. Yeah, I'm with you. As recently as last week, they were dead last in the NFL in EPA per play on second down. And part of that is because you're doing nothing on first down. So my first one is keep the Jets running game in check because they Mm -hmm. ran for 5.1 yards per rush against the Bills and Wilson only threw for 154 and they won the game. And in that game, Michael Carter got going 12 for 76, which is what, 6.3 yards per carry. Now he's only at 3.9 yards per rush on the season. But in the first game between these two teams, the Jets only ran for, what, 3.4 yards per attempt. So that's part of the reason, and this is sort of the key of why you have to keep the Jets running game is in check. Put the game on Wilson, right? If you yep. look at Wilson, against pressure, he's the worst quarterback in the NFL. 39 out of 39 in terms of his rating. His rating is a 6.6. <laughs> that's his passer rating against pressure, okay? And against the Patriots, they pressured him on 25% of his dropbacks. He was 4 of 16 with one touchdown and three interceptions. All three interceptions 
were atrocious. I mean, there was one where he was just backpedaling away from Judon and just he could have easily thrown it out of bounds. He was out of the pocket and he threw it right to Devin McCourty. So my biggest thing in this game is find a way like you did in the first game to put it on Wilson, because if you do that, Wilson is going to give you the football or at least he's definitely going to give you opportunities. Maybe not as easy as last time, but he will throw it up to you. He will. And um, that was something I you remember talking about after that game. It, again, you just that's been the story really of the Patriots first half of the season is which team, you know, aside from the times we saw Lamar Jackson and Aaron Rodgers can put the game in the other team's quarterback the fastest because of the way Mac has struggled, Bailey Zappi has been playing and the quarterbacks you've seen, Sam Allinger, Jacoby Brissett, we've run down all of them and including Zach Wilson, who you mentioned melts under pressure and they just waited him out. I talked to Miles Bryant after the, that game and he said, I faced Zach Wilson in 2019 and he was doing the same thing then. You want to frustrate him because he'll give the ball up. You know, facing certain teams, there's a greater likelihood they're going to turn the ball over. And he didn't say it, but that obviously indicated that the Jets are one of them. So, yeah, that only is possible if you stop the run, which sounds like kind of this archaic way of looking at football. And uh, we move past that in the efficiency. Well, running the football is back, baby. And it has had the higher yard per carry across the league that we've had in over a decade. And if you take that away from Zach Wilson, inevitably he will give the game over to you. All right, one extra point. This is something we haven't covered. It's got to be game related. It doesn't have to make any sort of sense or be important. What's your extra point here about Pat's Jets on Sunday? Okay, so does Tyquan Thornton have a role in this game? Because mm. it's interesting to me that, okay, he's playing more snaps now. But if you go through it, in the last three games, three receptions on 11 targets. Now, there was a drop in there, too. That was definitely his fault. And he's had no rushing attempts. I go back to the Cleveland game. And Callahan, I was so excited. He had four catches for 37 yards on five targets. And he ran for a touchdown. He had those three carries. And one of the things that I was thinking after that game is they're on to something. They are going to use Tyquan Thornton, a guy that they picked in the second round. I know you know that he had a great training camp. You were there. So it was like we were feeling really optimistic as Patriots fans entering the season that, hey, you know what? Forget Nikhil Harry. Forget all these misses in the first couple of rounds with receivers. Bill finally found a way to hit on a receiver. And here's my big thing with Thornton. Like I mentioned with Ramondre Stevenson being by far the best offensive player on this team. Tyquan Thornton has something that the rest of the Patriots offensive players don't have, which is elite speed. This guy ran a 4-2-8 at the combine. So can you find a way to weaponize the speed, right? And I always thought about it like when they first drafted him. Is this going to be like Deshaun Jackson, super fast guy, deep drink it down the field? But it seems like the trend in the NFL, these super fast guys, they're actually, if you look at their average depth of target it's actually down right they're getting the ball in those guys hands like the Jalen Waddles and the Tyree Kill in Miami you, I'm not comparing him to Tyree Kill so don't go crazy here but just get him the ball in space and let him make plays after the catch so I do really wonder not just for this game but in particular going forward how much of a role and how much of an emphasis are they going to put on giving Tyquan Thornton the ball because he could bring an element to this team that quite frankly they don't have he could I just I just don't trust him yet. And that's part him being a rookie. That's part him missing time. That's part looking at his tape against guys like Stefan Gilmore, still playing at a Pro Bowl level. But a guy like Sauce Gardner and even DJ Reed is going to be pretty physical with him, especially when they're kind of in bump and run or playing, you know, third short. The Jets play more man than people give them credit for, uh, but also in cover three. So if he can't handle the physicality or necessarily separate, you don't have time to look downfield and put him in those situations. Interesting, interesting you bring up the run plays, though, because I think that is something that the Patriots may have stumbled into and didn't realize it because those plays, my understanding was, were designed for Kendrick Bourne in that game against Cleveland. And when Bourne goes out with turf toe, Tyquan steps in and does very well, scores that touchdown. But they knew the way Cleveland was defending those kind of plays or they could force them into a defensive alignment based on formation. They'd have a clear and easy path around the corner. And he is like sending Grant Delpit a postcard as he's whizzing by him to the end zone because Delpit's still looking in the backfield. So I think, yes, they could certainly return to that because at some point, 4-2-8 speed is 4-2-8 speed. And if you can keep him from getting jammed by Gardner or DJ Reed, that might be something. My extra point is trash talk. I want a little salt with my patch jets. Okay. Like I miss the days of Rex Ryan, not kissing any sort of rings or some very short, just cold, hard handshakes at midfield between Mangini and Belichick, like 13 straight wins. This is great for Patriots fans. You can dunk on New York, the Boston, New York thing, the whole deal. But 2015 was a long time ago. I'm not asking for a jets win. I'm not asking for a Patriots blowout. I'm just asking for 
I don't know, maybe a scrum, maybe like a little meeting at midfield pregame, maybe some postgame comments that are like Matthew Slater is even admitting there's a lot on the line. He did that on Monday. That is mild-mannered, well-spoken Matthew Slater when the Patriots leave the building every day by a sign that has four points, and one of them is don't fuel the hype. Well, they are fueling the hype for this game, and I want to see more of that hype on the field spill over in something that results in a 15-yard penalty or at least some sort of different handshake or postgame comments that has me racing to the press box to tell everyone this is what was said because we need a little spice in here, okay? A little seasoning. This has been just like plain chicken on the frying pan, flip it over, it's cooked. That's been the whole series. Give me, Give me a little spice. Well, and to remember one of the great moments was Wes Welker before the playoff yeah. game. Yeah, where he had the, 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 the foot soldiers comments, like talking about Rex Ryan and what he may or may have not liked. The only thing put our best still, foot forward. I, yeah. Yeah. Put our best foot forward. I still don't understand why Bill benched him for a series. Like, what was the point of that? I mean, it made no sense to me. I thought that was a bad vibe heading into the game benching Welker. But yeah, there used to be great moments between these two teams back and forth remember when you had like uh, actually no that was i was gonna say lt but that was when lt was in san diego when he was mad that the patriots are doing the merriman sack dance remember that game but disrespectful yeah he was still a sourpuss when he was on the jets as well yeah he was that's uh uh, I just lost my train of thought. But as far as, oh, that game too, the division round playoff game that no one wants to remember, but, you know, 28-21, the last time the Jets have beaten the Patriots in regulation. Wow. Obama's first term. Okay. And we can go back and look at all like the charts and the hits. And I did this before the first game, you know, all the things that were happening in 2015, which now that they're top of mind, you know, Obama's still in office. You had uh, the last Harry Potter movie was coming out, as was the first Star Wars movie coming out with the new trilogy. Like all these different things. Uh, 2015 feels a long time ago, but not as long ago as 2011 in January when the Patriots lost to the Jets the last time in regulation. So I'll just ask you this then to get you out of here. Do they lose again in regulation to the Jets? How does this game go? I believe the Patriots are going to win this game. I believe they'll grind it out. And I feel like they have obviously been really good against Zach Wilson. Now a lot of defenses have, but I think they'll turn them over a couple of times. And my hope, and maybe this is just blind faith. I think they're going to find something that works offensively. Now, maybe it doesn't work in two weeks against the Vikings or against the bills or Miami down the stretch of the season, but you've had this much time to get ready for this jets team. And I get the jets are coming off a big win. They've had time to prepare too, but I feel like, I have to imagine they looked and Mac Jones talked about how it was a self-evaluation week that at least for a week, they'll find something offensively that you can say, Oh yeah, the Patriots did this really well in this game. I feel like that's going to happen. Callahan. I agree with you. And I want to go back to the comments. Mac made, he called it a self audit, which, you know, it didn't, it wasn't very fun because he called it an audit and not a self-evaluation or scouting (laughs) or just anything, because of course no one wants to deal with an audit. And that's something he willingly undertook uh, during the bye week there I get a strange sense that you know might completely blow up my fan, my face but this will be a much more high scoring game than we saw against the jets like i think those two weeks where the jets will have some new wrinkles they understand how they want to attack the patriots with, who have a run defense that's still suspect i think james robinson being in that system a little bit longer helps i think zach wilson can't play any worse than he did really against the patriots i still don't trust him and for mac jones like again if i can tell how often they're running into stacked boxes and their inefficiency in early downs, something he brought up after the Colts game. Like the Patriots can see it too. They've had enough time to say, here are the fixes we need to make. They've had enough time to put those changes into practice. And like we've covered, the Jets don't change on defense. They run their system. Okay, there's enough variety in there to keep you maybe not off balance, but to have answers for anything you want to do. It's just that the Patriots usually seize on those defenses, understanding that we can predict what you're going to do and exploit it. I don't have a ton of faith in either offense, like you said, long-term, maybe not even in 10 days, but ultimately I think we get a game for the Patriots that might be more like 27-23 as opposed to 17-13 here on Sunday. Yeah, I hope you're right. I hope we get a big win for the Patriots. My only thing that I'm worried about a little bit is just, and this doesn't really affect you because you'll be at the game, but I haven't seen who's calling this because the indie game, we got stuck with Adam Archuleta again. Nothing against that guy, but I mean, I guess I'm about to criticize him after I said nothing against him. He's not one of the best analysts in the world. And Greg Gumble, I know that he's been in the business for a long time, but he continually gets guys' names wrong. I want like a top-tier broadcast. Like my hope is that it's Ian Eagle because 
Ian Eagle's my favorite guy in terms of now Harlan and Ian Eagle. Those I would say are my two favorite bucks, like solid bucks, always going to be good. I enjoy the Monday night thing. Although I do feel, I find myself going to the Manning broadcast a lot just because of the guests. And I do find Eli really funny, but I hope we get a top tier broadcast on Sunday because some of the stuff that they said on that indie broadcast, I'm like, a lot of this just isn't true. A lot of this doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. Well, I have good news for you. According to our good friend, Mike Reese, Kevin Harlan is on play-by-play with Trent Green, and then Melanie Collins is doing sideline. So I think that's their number three team, uh, yeah. which, look, is due respect because this is the biggest Patriots-Jets game in over a decade, really since that playoff game when you consider the playoff stakes for both sides and the way things have gone lately. So, yeah, I think Kevin Harlan's going to have a hell of a call, and I hope it's for a lot of uh, touchdowns as opposed to defensive stops. But Yeah, I love Harlan. Harlan's awesome. Yeah, he, he's the guy if like I'm just in the kitchen, you know, again, cooking chicken, as I just described it, like it's, it's pretty boring. I'll throw a little seasoning and that's it. And that's dinner. And I don't care. Like he would make that sound exciting. OK, or like walking to the car, unlocking the door, steps in with no regards, the leaves underneath his feet. Like he would make anything mundane sound a lot of fun, uh, yeah, especially he like on, he, he does it on reads too. like when he's on the NBA, he, he yeah. does like the Burger King or the Taco Bell read like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or anytime there's a streaker on the field, which you know what, if I'm asking for spice and seasoning with the game, that would just about do it. Not that I'm officially condoning it on the podcast. Uh, if you want to spend a day at Gillette Stadium Jail, be my guest. But either way, Kevin Harlan would have a hell of a call if you do. One guy who I know is not going to do that, it's going to have a game, watch it, and outstanding analysis after is Brian Barrett. He is from The Ringer. He's off the Pike podcast. Listen to it, especially when I am on at some point, hopefully for a fourth time. This is your debut. You crushed it, and we'll definitely have you back. Thank you, ma'am. All right, Callahan, enjoyed it, my friend.